0: Welcome to our podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy are exposing mold. Today, we are here with Dr. Ed Levin.
1: Hello, everyone. I'd love to introduce you to Home Cleanse, formerly known as All-American Restoration. They are the first and only remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Visit them at homecleanse.com. Dr. Levin was
0: featured in Rodney Barker's book called And the Water's Turn to Blood because he's a specialist in neurobehavioral toxicology. Dr. Levin, we know that you analyze the effects of harmful algae blooms and we're wondering if you could. Speak with us a little bit about your research on that matter.
2: Sure, sure. I did most of this work, actually, back in the early 2000s with pisteria and also some work with tamaric acid, but I'll be happy to, to talk to you about the neurobehavioral effects of that.
0: Thank you so much. Yes, we'd love to hear it.
2: Yeah. So what we found is that with Pasteuria, we did all the work with with adults. We did worked with the rat models, and so what happened back in the late '90s, early 2000s, was there is reports of mass fish kills, and also the people getting ill from breathing the air near the fish kills, and it was difficult to determine with the people exposed to what was the the factor. So. Uh, we worked with Joanna Burkholder from uh, North Carolina State University and used a, a rat model where we would uh, expose the rats in the laboratory to fixed amounts of the uh, stereo extracts and, and look at their behavioral function. And what we found was that the processes of learning were significantly impaired by this sort of exposure, and particularly an area of the brain called the hippocampus was impaired in terms of the processing and in, in learning. However, you know, there hasn't been a whole lot done since that era because it's a very complex organism with many, many life stages and it was difficult to identify the particular toxin that was causing these effects. And then the fact is that Pisteria itself and the environment has been greatly diminished in this area. There are some hurricanes that essentially flushed out the estuaries and it hasn't really been seen. But it it was a fairly controversial area when we were in it. And the area of marine toxins has progressed with other toxins, such as tamaric acid, nesting shellfish poisoning, where We've seen, with especially with prenatal exposure in the rat models, that there was a, a significant persisting effects on cognitive function and locomotor function, and, and slightly less in, in terms of postnatal exposure. But certainly there, it's, it's much firmer in terms of the acetylchloric acid that's the offending agent in terms of causing um, the um, cognitive impairments. And you see this in people, too, who uh, eat contaminated shellfish and the fact is that shellfish like clams and, and related bivalves uh, filter lots and lots of water so they accumulate the mic acid in their, in their flesh and then people would consume it and, and be affected by that.
0: I know that Eric has a lot of questions for you because he has a special interest in algae blooms. So without any further ado, I'd like to just pass the mic to Eric.
3: Yeah, I'm a survivor of a famous outbreak of mystery illness at North Lake Tahoe. In 1985, which led to the creation of the Holmes 1988 Chronic Fatigue Syndrome definition,
2: uh-huh.
3: and we had an algae bloom at the time. You know, it's funny; I keep calling it algae, and some people say algae, and I oh, can really? never figure out why. Why some of us do it that way?
2: Tomato, tomato, yeah. It's I don't think there's a one proper way of doing it, but yeah,
3: just grew up that way. Yeah, but uh, at the at the time of the mystery illness, I went down to the beach. And all the uh, crayfish had literally jumped out of the water. They were crawling out of the water and dying on the beach in droves. I mean, by the millions, you couldn't even walk on the beach. They were packed so tight. You literally could not find enough beach to stand on without stepping on crayfish. Never seen anything like it before. Never seen anything like it since. But uh, this coincided with this mystery illness. And I felt a burning sensation, difficult to breathe, headaches, neurological symptoms. And a lot of people all across North Lake Tahoe got sick and complained of similar problems at this time. And the doctors knew nothing about toxins from cyanobacteria or these blooms, heart, hazardous algal blooms. And they fixated on reactivated viruses, on immune dysfunction, on just about anything else. And they attached no importance at all to the cyanobacteria bloom that was going on at the time. When Dr. Richie Shoemaker's 2001 book, Desperation Medicine, he described the Visteria outbreak on the Chesapeake and people getting sick on the Potomac River, and that people close to the river were getting ill and moving away and acquiring an illness that actually made them susceptible to sick buildings, moldy buildings. So my question was, did the exposure to these fisteria toxins create some kind of
2: susceptibility to toxic mold? Well, it may have. Uh, Really, there's been not enough research to to nail that down, but it's certainly possible that whenever you have any sort of toxic exposure, whether it's a toxic algal bloom or or you know, man-made chemicals, you can have additive effects with other sorts of exposures. And certainly, there are plenty of toxic molds that can cause illness of the various sorts. So yeah, I mean, it's possible. It would just take the proper studies to, to, to determine if that was true.
3: Just anecdotally, have you heard reports of people who are exposed to Pisteria or to the silt having a problem with sick buildings?
2: That I don't know. You probably should talk with the people who did these sort of that sort of work with humans, with Ritchie and Lynn Grattan and others who have done that sort of work, we only did the the rat part of it. That was our component that we were recruited by the EPA to to look at that.
3: Uh, Dr. Schumacher was so convinced of this that he wrote it in several of his books: uh-huh. Desperation Medicine, Surviving Mold, and uh, Mold Warriors. Uh-huh. And so far, anecdotally. When I take people to sick buildings, they all complain in an equal manner. I haven't had experience with people who were knowingly affected by hysteria, but I have heard from people who are exposed to ciguatoxin, and they seem to have acquired the same reactivity.
2: Yeah like i like i said it's certainly possible and if you know through this increased awareness there might be some funding for the appropriate human studies to nail this down i think that would be a great advance forward to take it from, I mean, a lot of uh, great research and medical practice comes from these reports from people who are suffering from illness, and then they take it to the next level of uh, of, of demonstrating the relationship and the mechanisms for the relationship, and often that can lead to to better treatments for people who are are suffering these illnesses. It might uh, come from a variety of different sort of physiological factors, from the the viral infection or or from uh, from these sort of toxin exposures or, or toxicant exposures in terms of human-made chemicals. But I mean, like a lot of things in terms of, you know, inability to to walk or inability to remember, it, it could be caused by many different factors. And one does not, one factor does not, you know, diminish the, the possibility that other factors would cause it. And certainly, I mean, the name amnestic shellfish poisoning kind of says it all, it's it's, it's the precipitating factor for, for this amnesia. And there is a big interaction that's discovered in more and more detail between the brain and the immune system, so that you can have a sensitization to certain factors that would cause cognitive and emotional and motor problems. So that, I think, it may be important in terms of this sensitization. Well,
3: one of the early clues that popped up, was an account by the question of whether Captain Cook's sailors back in the 1700s may have suffered from a form of chronic fatigue syndrome. Because the ship's doctor, Georg Georg Reinhold, described how they had eaten a large fish, a grouper presumably, and become ill. And this is obviously a a clear-cut case of ciguatoxin poisoning. And even though they became extremely ill for a time, most of them seemed to recover until they entered Queen Charlotte Sound. And when ashore, upon going ashore, some of the sailors instantly became ill again. And mm-hmm. I thought that was fascinating that simply going ashore was associated with the relapse of illness. Yeah. So I was wondering if the ciguatoxin poisoning had primed their immune systems and Queen yeah. Charlotte Sound, which is notorious for ultra blooms, yeah. there may have been enough residual in the silt that when they debarked, Got on shore,
2: it reinvigorated their illness it, that may well be true that I mean, in terms of you know modern environmental toxicology, usually people talk about this great increase in the toxicants that are human made in the environment, and that's certainly true, but these marine toxins have been around you know for, for a very, very long time their Their incidence has probably increased with the global warming, but the, they they've been around for Hundreds or, or thousands, many thousands of years. And these are an evolutionary process by which these organisms can defend themselves or, or have predatory effects.
3: Well, the priming effect seems to be consistent with the multiple chemical sensitivity illness that people describe, except in this case, this is to a biological toxin rather than to any chemical toxicants.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, you know, it's there, a chemical. It's a natural chemical, but just because something's natural doesn't mean it's safe. You know, take poison ivy for (laughs) a prime example, and it's totally natural, but it's totally unsafe. But yeah, so there are chemicals that are produced by organisms like these toxins and chemicals that are produced by people, these toxicants like PFOAs or pesticides and can cause sensitization. And actually, you can see in cases of sensitization with other sorts of chemical exposures as well. And so it, it would be an example with the marine toxins that might be a common feature with other sorts of toxins.
3: Well, as I looked through history, I found sick building syndrome was vaguely described, but not really as a major overpowering problem in society. Very rarely was a building ever condemned or abandoned as a result of people just complaining that it was making them sick. And this seems to have emerged in the, in the 1980s.
2: Yeah, well, there are sick six building syndromes that you see all around the world. And you've seen for a long time in terms of improper ventilation of cook stoves, And then you have the uh, toxins come from polluting carbon monoxide and incomplete combustion products accumulating in, in the in the house from improper ventilation. And then the same sort of thing occurs in the modern buildings where you don't have windows that can open. You uh, have a central heating and uh, air conditioning system that may be inadequate. And then you have Things like glue for carpets or other things that are coming out of the walls in terms of chemical chemicals in the paint or other construction materials that may be breathed in and you know, cause the sick building syndrome. But that's just a, a kind of the most recent iteration of people getting sick in their houses because of toxic exposures. And and you know, ever since people have had fireplaces in their house or cookstoves in their house, they've had exposure to those products as well, those incomplete combustion products.
3: Well, just anecdotally, people seem to have an especial fear of a toxic black mold that really stood out. And even though this wasn't described until the 1990s, uh, looking through the old literature, it turns out that some people were deadly afraid of hay, of straw. Mm -hmm. And the earliest accounts of stachybotrys poisoning or the toxic, the dreaded toxic black mold did come from hay. And this has emerged as a real problem in the sheetrock, the cellulose paper backing on sheetrock that combines with this toxic black mold and produces some kind of powerful toxin. Mm that strikes me as being so similar to what was seen in the Pisteria outbreaks that I just can't help but wonder there's some kind of psychotoxin or hysteria antigen epitope, which strikes the immune system in such a similar fashion that it really can't tell the difference between the two.
2: Well, there there are a lot of different chemicals that affects similar systems, whether it's in the lung or in the brain or in the immune system. So there may be some convergence of the symptoms and the physiological processes that are affected by these things. And I mean, certainly in North Carolina, we see tremendous problems with mold, especially after flooding and uh, hurricane events. And again, that's something that is on the increase with the, with the global climate change. So that any area and furnishings or, or, or parts of the housing structure that gets wet and can't be properly dried is prone to develop this sort of mold. And stachybotrys is, is, is one notorious type of mold, but there are many other kinds that sometimes the house has to be demolished because of that. And, and then there, it brings in a kind of environmental justice issue too, because then people who are in lower lower socioeconomic strata of, of our society, then can't afford to, you know, be moving out to cleaner housing or to safer housing. And they're stuck in this contaminated housing, whether it's because it's next to a chemical dump site or because it's been flooded and not properly dried out. And then they're prone to
3: I was thinking that you wanted to follow up on asking about the autism and Alzheimer's connections, to some of these toxicants.
2: Well, certainly we've I've been doing some work recently with the autism and, and models of that and looking at the relationship between exposure to certain pesticides. And again, this is in the rat and also the zebrafish models that we've been working with. And there is a certain receptor system, retinoic acid receptor system that is important in terms of neurodevelopment. And it's actually related to vitamin A. And so that we found that actually taking too much vitamin A can make these animals more prone to autism-like phenotypes. And it's known that it's substantially increased vitamin A. I mean, here's something that's an essential vitamin, but too much of it can cause damage. And it's already known in the literature that if you have substantially too much vitamin A, you can have a result in microcephaly, a very lethal and, and severe birth defect. And moderately elevated by venena it may present the danger as well in terms of these also debilitating but you know not as lethal problems with, with autism but there are other things under investigation in terms of autism in terms of uh, pesticides and other sorts of exposures i mean there, there are probably some genetic factors that play into this but our, our genes haven't changed a whole lot in the last uh, several decades, but certainly the incidence of autism has it's substantially increased. I mean, somewhat through increased the di- diagnostic criteria, but even accounting for that, the true incidence of autism has, has gone up. And, and the reasons behind that, we're still under investigation, but people are doing epidemiological studies like at University of California at Davis and other places, but also in terms of these experimental models, so you can pick out which particular pesticides or other sort of chemicals might play into that. And then at the other end of life, in terms of Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease or ALS, that you probably have some important roles that are, are played by environmental toxins. And so that also is being investigated in terms of um, things that increase oxidative stress, and in the case of Parkinson's and, and ALS in particular, and, and other exposures that may um, affect uh, acetylcholine systems, like uh, in the case of Alzheimer's disease. So yeah, yeah, there's certainly... Important roles played by environmental toxins in in a lot of these uh, neurobehavioral impairments.
3: Where does get somebody get too much vitamin A from?
2: Well, vitamin A is lipophilic, so it accumulates in the body. And if you take too much vitamin C, which is you know hydrophilic, uh, you just pee it out, and you have expensive urine. But vitamin A, you can build up in your body. If you take a multivitamin, there are also vitamin A supplements you can have. If you're eating a enriched diet, like most of us are you're probably getting enough vitamin A to begin with. And then if you combine that with a genetic susceptibility to the adverse effects of, of overstimulation of retinoic acid systems, then you you may have a an overdose of that. And then it's similar in some of the trace metals too, like manganese, where you, know, you need some or zinc, you need some, but you have too much. And same with iron. If you have too much, then you could have a, a toxic event. The same thing with Actually, oxygen, you know, certainly if you have too little, you're going to die. If you have too much chronically, you can, you know, induce some oxidative stress.
3: A Really interesting hypothesis has emerged recently that a lot of people with chronic illnesses are deficient in butyrate. Mm-hmm. It's produced by intestinal microbiota yeah. solely by bacteria. And yet it's vital to protect from neuroinflammation. Yep. And that this might be linked to an intestinal dysbiosis in the mothers of people who eventually wind up with autism or these neurodegenerative diseases.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, the importance of the microbiome has been, it's always been important and has become increasingly appreciated over the last decade or two. And it's really an active area of investigation. And you're right in terms of butyrate. It's- causes a, a protective effect against a number of different toxins, and including manganese. So our biota in the intestine and on our skin and other parts of the body are, are, are vitally important. And there are problems with, you know, manipulations of these things, like taking antibiotics. Certainly antibiotics are a godsend in terms of, you know, protecting us against a lot of infectious diseases, but, you know, there are dangers to that, both in terms of Driving the evolution of those bacterial diseases in terms of having a resistant organisms, but also in terms of wiping out the good, the quote good bacteria in, in your gut and other parts of the system that you would not have the proper microbiome, and and also you know the process by which we deal with birth. Usually, there's a transmission of the, of the microbiome from the mother to the child, which often is not completely done because of the the processes by which we we handle birth at this point.
3: One of the astonishing observations that came out of the original chronic fatigue syndrome outbreak was everybody in town wound up with incredible food reactivities. Mm -hmm. I mean, intolerance to just about everything. People were running out of things to eat. I mean, coffee, cheese, Mm -hmm. peanuts, bread. People had to give up one foodstuff, one after another, until there was like nothing left to eat but mung beans. Oh boy! And in the midst of all this, a couple of us just found out that if we just went out to the nearby desert and went camping, our food intolerance disappeared sometimes within days. Oh boy. Now everybody back in town was taking every form of probiotic, every supplement, everything they could do to get their intestinal digestive microbiota back on track with no success but simply freeing ourselves from some kind of exposure back in the North Tahoe region at this time had this dramatic effect. Yeah. So that was one of the things I wanted to look for in the people who were close to Pisteria and Harpoidal blooms.
2: Yeah. Well, it brings up a great point that everybody in the course of their lives are experimenting in terms of well, this makes me feel well, this makes me feel ill, and how can I, you know, get to a healthier place? And something that's missing in terms of our medical and scientific development is trying to gather that sort of primary information and then get it into the more formalized process to say, well, you've discovered this works for you, how can we generalize it and determine how it might work for others? And so if we could have a conduit by which we can get this adventitious uh, self-experimentation of people finding you know so much sugar or so much time in the desert or so much drinking this water or, or living in this building or not back to a process where we can generalize it and say yeah for the greater society that this might be useful that that would be that would be a, a big advance and and you see that somewhat with in terms of medical doctors my father was a a, a a physician and he i'm not a physician i'm just a researcher but you know he would try various things with various patients and over a period of decades got some inherent wisdom as the yeah this works with this sort of person this works with that sort of person if we could get that sort of experience back into the research process then we could maybe come up with some better treatments for people in general
1: everyone, Alicia here. One of the most common questions I receive from our audience members is this, who can I trust to perform a thorough mold inspection of my home? The Mold Guy performs mold inspections specifically for individuals who require a much higher standard of care owing to your complex health concerns like SIRS, Lyme, CFS, autoimmune issues, and more. Their testing and inspection process supersedes all current industry standards on purpose, making them thought leaders and disruptors in an industry unwilling to change old and outdated paradigms. Book your complimentary phone consults here at themoldguyinc.com connect. That's themoldguyinc.com c-o-n-n-e-c-t.
3: Well, I did decide to take people through this process. I came up with what I called the chronic fatigue syndrome mold history tour. Mm-hmm. and I would take people to the very locations that were making people ill, and then we would practice learning how to detect and avoid that sensation, go camping in the desert, have people experience this, a similar recovery, and we would report this to our top institutes and researchers, mm-hmm. and they'd say "That's great, but you have no proof. There's nothing in the literature.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, well, it'd be a matter of getting the, the, the funding wherewithal and the people who are in, in those institutions that could do these sort of studies. And I mean, a good example is lithium, a treatment for uh, bipolar disorder. It had long been known that people who lived in El Paso, Texas, had lower rates of suicide and the bipolar illness, then people in other places, and somebody went and analyzed their water, and their, their water has a lot of lithium in it. And so just naturally. And so there is a natural experiment. And then people did the, the studies with it and, you know, gave certain people lithium and other people not. And it turns out that, you know, for, you know, lithium itself has side effects, but it actually does have some benefit in terms of, of, of treating bipolar disorder.
3: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. That's terrific. We need more observations like that.
2: <laughs> well, it's kind of like Alexander Fleming and his, you know, it's, it's like science prepared. Discovery is happens to the prepared mind. And he had the window open and, and some of his cultures, you know, this mold that came in, which was penicillin, uh, killed some of the, the bacteria and he discovered the antibiotics. So, yeah. I mean, they, they say that you don't discover anything new in biology. You only discover things that have already been solved through evolution. And so we're just trying to recapitulate what's happened over the last billion years of evolution. Let's come up with some very good things and some not so good things like the marine toxins. I mean, that's, you know, and the other thing that we haven't talked about is there are never single toxins. There are always these, these family of toxins. So it's, if you have a single toxin, then your prey species can evolve to be resistant in a single mutation. But if you have a, a, a variety of different toxins, then they can't evolve around that. So there are a lot of, there's, there's some research now on, in terms of looking at these families of toxins, and some have toxic effects, and some actually might have some beneficial effects used in the right way. Well, as, as you point out
3: with the Alexander Fleming story, I point this out to researchers when I relay some of our observations, and they say, well, there's nothing in the literature, you have no proof. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, imagine if Alexander Fleming had come to you, you would have just ruled him
2: out. (laughs) That's often the case with the people being, I mean, who is the fellow who first conjectured the continental drift, you know? saying, oh, well, you know, look at South America and Africa. They kind of fit together and, you know, there were these floating continents. People say, come on, you have a whole mountain system that could just float around. And, you know, if you look at a different time scale. yeah. That was
3: work. astonishing, astonishing that he would be ridiculed for that when you look at the pieces and they all fit together.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, the same thing is the infectious nature of, of gastric ulcers. And, you know, the... Uh, h pylori and you know he actually uh, experimented himself and he took some of this organism and and he got an ulcer and uh, you know each generation thinks that they have a corner on the truth and all the other generations before have been fairly stupid but each succeeding generation proves that we're stupid as well so (laughs) we have to have a certain humility about this because there's still much, much more to be discovered about, you know, how biology works and and how we can, you know, live healthier and happier lives.
3: Yeah, we've always got to keep an open mind because you never know.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's certainly true.
3: But turning to a really tragic situation, I wonder if you've been following the horrible story of this family that died down near Mariposa, down near Yosemite. They were hiking in an area where uh, hazardous elder blooms had been posted on I the Merced that. River. And it was not a particularly strenuous hike, only eight miles, but it was a very hot day.
2: Yeah.
3: And this, the trail goes down to the Merced River, and then back up a steep, winding, very hot, exposed trail back to their car. And the entire family, including their dog, passed away.
2: Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. And, I mean, I saw that they had concluded it was hyperthermia, but You know, I'm sure it was hot and and dry, but for everyone to to be killed, I mean, you could have some exposure that would make you more prone to hyperthermia. So that may have been some combination of of things, but that certainly was tragic. Yeah.
3: Well, when I think about my own experience with the exposure to the the algal bloom and how it weakened me, made me so sick that I could hardly walk, I can't help but feel that they got down close to the Merced River. Inhaled a bit of these toxins and this weakened them sufficiently that they succumbed to hyperthermia.
2: Yeah, that may have been the case. And yeah, certainly tragic. Yeah.
3: So, my other hypothesis just strictly empirical observation from people that I witnessed all around me who were exposed to these algal blooms, these which I presume to be anatoxin A, because that is a very fast death factor. Mm-hmm. that's the one that seems to have the most potential for lashing out causing some kind of really horrific neurological issues and then possibly priming people so that later when they come into contact with other biotoxins or toxicants they're they're already weakened and having problems mm-hmm. with it because all the people that were in my sphere from then on had problems with sick buildings
2: yeah yeah, well, certainly anatoxin A, it's a, it's a prototypic uh, nicotinic acetylcholine receptor agonist, much like nicotine. And that, you know, nicotinic receptors are certainly found in a lot of areas of the of, of the brain and, and peripheral nervous system, but also on lymphocytes. I can see where that may have this sort of sensitizing effect.
3: You know, I know that a
2: acetylcholine esterase inhibitor
3: will cause pinpoint pupils. Right. But an agonist, wouldn't it do the opposite and dilate the pupils?
2: Well, you know, cholinesterase inhibitor actually then inhibits the breakdown of acetylcholine. So even though it's an inhibitor of of one thing, it's an inhibitor of an inhibitor, basically. So it actually causes there to be too much acetylcholine in the synapse because it inhibits its breakdown. And so that's how it has its... uh, uh, toxic effects. I mean, you speak of of, of these uh, AChE inhibitors, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, and that's a classic example of kind of dose making the poison. So, if you take it to an extreme case, then this is the mechanism of action of nerve gases like soman, and they can quickly kill people, you know, in a horrible way. If you have it in a, a slightly less uh, potent formulation, then it could be an insecticide, and it'll kill insects and and not kill people, I mean, it could cause toxic effects in people, but not not so much lethal unless it's a very high dose. And you take it even milder form, it can be an effective treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, again, it's not going to cure Alzheimer's, but it can alleviate some of the symptoms. So that's a similar thing with nicotinic agonists that, you know, certainly at higher doses, um, certainly can be an addictive uh, ingredient like in tobacco. Uh, But now people are looking at nicotinic uh, drugs, including nicotine itself uh, for treatments of something like uh, Alzheimer's disease or other sorts of cognitive impairments. Uh, So it's a complicated story. It's not black or white or even gray, but a pattern of effects. And and you take any therapeutic drug, some people can't tolerate it, or if you have too much, you can cause an overdose. But there are, you know, in the proper um, set of people, and the proper dose, it may be very therapeutically effective in terms of alleviating, you know, symptoms or arthritis or, or cancer or, or, you know, a variety of different things.
3: Well, so much time has passed since the original chronic fatigue syndrome outbreak, the Langtau mystery illness, that all the clues have been lost to history, completely forgotten. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you go to your doctor and the first thing they do is they give you a physical examination and they mm-hmm. look in your eyes. All of us had pupils blown wide open. Was
2: this seen in the Fisteria outbreak? I don't know. I mean, again, you might want to talk to Richie and his his group. I I don't know about that one. In terms of dilation of of the pupils, I would think it would be an antagonist to acetylcholine systems. I mean, that would certainly have that effect. So things like scopolamine, which is a natural product, actually may have that effect, and also has anesthetic effects. Or atropine, belladonna, is also another drug in that class.
3: Right. Actually, I did ask Dr. Shoemaker about that, and he said that they did see the uh, wide-open pupils.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, that may be a commonality then in terms of these different toxin exposures. And that's a, another example of how you can have different sorts of molecules affecting the same physiologic system, like acetylcholine uh, receptors in this case, that uh, could have a common you know, symptomatic effect.
3: And the other curious thing is
2: that uh, why hasn't this reoccurred? Oh, the Fisteria? That's a mystery. And you might talk with Joanna Burkholder in another one of your podcasts because, and she saw on the faculty at North Carolina State University. And it's a very complex organism with many different life stages. And again, it was quite controversial and I'm, I'm not enough of a, you know, aquatic ecologist to understand all of the complexities of it, but the, she could give you a better idea. I mean, you know, some of these things, it depends on climactic events like hurricanes or other sorts of uh, microbiota that may be uh, uh, predators or, or prey of the of the species in question, and just the conditions have changed. But during that era of the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, there were a lot of fish kills and and she presented some, some pretty convincing evidence and, and also the idea of the evidence from the people who were exposed and, and then the laboratory uh, studies that we and other people did, um, I think, you know, showed that there, there something was there. It's just that, you know, it, it occurred during those climactic times and it may reoccur at some point, but um, not so often as other things like red tide or, or you know, amnestic shellfish poisoning and, and other, other marine toxins. I know
3: it's pretty classic to blame this on agricultural runoff, but we don't have any runoff up at Lake Tahoe. We're up <laughs> at the top of the mountains. Yeah, yeah. So has anybody looked into the possibility that some of these things that are altering the the activity of the cyanobacteria could be blowing in on the air?
2: Yeah, it may be. And, you know, there have been the cases that uh, there's uh, such thing as upstream anymore. I mean, every... Everything you take the PFOA classic compounds they're they're found most everywhere because they get into the food web and they get into the atmosphere and then they get circulated all around and uh, yeah if something gets atmospherically born then it could go most uh, everywhere and I mean you can look in the Arctic and you know, find contaminants. you see DDT in the Arctic you know in the fat of polar bears you know, so they they were never directly sprayed but it's kind of migrated around uh, around the globe. Yeah. So the next question,
3: of course, was about the rise in mental illness corresponding with these neurotoxicants, you know, mm-hmm. Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and maybe at a lower level, just plain out depression.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And there's a recent interest by the National Institute of Environmental Health Studies, NIHS, that, that are actually based here in North Carolina. It's part of the NIH on psychiatric illness and environmental toxicants. So a lot of their research to date has focused on development and things like autism or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And and also at the end of life, things like Parkinson's disease and, and Alzheimer's disease. But in the middle of life, I mean, certainly, you know, Great numbers of people were affected at one time or another by mental illness, most commonly depression, but also you know anxiety and other sorts of mental illnesses. And how those may be related to the neurotoxicity caused by these natural chemicals like the marine toxins or, or human-made chemicals like pesticides or, or, or natural chemicals that are enhanced in their distribution by human activity like lead or mercury.
3: As part of my experiment of taking people to these bad locations, I ask them to assess to assess their mental state while we're still out in the woods or in a pristine uh-huh. area, and then see how it alters as we approach these sick buildings. And yeah, it is absolute universal. Everybody says that they feel a drop in their their mental status.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I can I can see well that may happen. I mean, there are certainly a lot of uh, solvents and uh, glues and, you know, formaldehyde and other things that get in the air of, of buildings and, and, and also, you know, things like mold and that could be causing these issues. And also, you know, contamination from HVAC systems. I mean, like the classic example is Legionnaire's disease. That actually was discovered in a Legionnaire, American Legion Convention. It was the coming from the air conditioning unit of a hotel where they were having their convention. And they came down, a number of them came down with this very severe respiratory disease. And it was a they call it Legionella after the, the first victims that were identified from it.
3: Yeah, it's notable that when the sick building syndrome paradigm emerged, it was attributed to chemicals and legionnaires disease. It was a full ten years before anybody suggested that perhaps mold was involved.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, now it's it's becoming quite apparent that a lot of these organisms can can have toxic effects. That's for sure. Well, that suggests to me that the pathogenesis of mold may have increased. Uh, it may have. It may have, or our susceptibility to it. So it's a kind of a dynamic system in terms of our exposure or other animals' exposure to environmental toxins may have made us more sensitive to these things, or or the evolution of, of these species, uh, you know, be it the marine organisms or mold, certainly uh, may have made them more pathogenic. I remember reading in the thistaria bloom
3: that some researcher was analyzing the lesions on the minhaden uh-huh. of a sick fish. Yep. And subjected it to some kind of test, I believe it was called the MIST test, uh-huh. and detected a transient volatile metallotoxin, mm-hmm. something that when the lesions were opened up, this toxin was detectable for fractions of a second, and then There's, disappeared.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that was part of the problem in terms of identifying the actual toxin, is that it seemed to be ephemeral. And a lot of these things can be broken down either through atmospheric degradation or in terms of um, some enzyme system that would decrease it. But it doesn't make them any less real. It just makes them harder to characterize. Has there been follow up to look for these
3: ephemeral toxins that disappear so quickly?
2: Um, the area in terms of Bisteria. Uh, has actually kind of slowed down considerably, probably because the environmental problems brought to bear have, have diminished because of changes in the in, in in the environment. And I haven't seen much in the literature in recent years from from that. And I mean, there are a lot of different problems and only so much resources to to, to attack the problems. So that's kind of gone lower on the priority. But, you know, if it, if it raises up again, I'm sure people will be back to it.
3: We've had repeated instances of dogs getting near cyanobacterial blooms, dropping immediately.
2: yeah,
3: And within minutes, by the time the investigators arrive, there's nothing there. There's nothing left to, to measure.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And again, just because something's ephemeral doesn't make it less real. I mean... You know, you can have a bullet going through the air and it's not there when you come to investigate, but somebody's lying on the concrete dead. And so that doesn't mean that the bullet wasn't once there and caused this damage. And so, and then some things are very, very persistent like DDT or PCBs or vaccines or PIFO as they, you know, can reside in your body for a lifetime. Other things like a lot of pesticides kind of hit and run. I mean, you don't really detect them, you know, by the time the damage is done. I wanted to
3: find out if we have any natural sensory warning systems for these types of toxins, so I took other people to anobacterial bloom, and sure enough, they complained of severe depression and distress prior to getting close to the water. Yeah. So I thought if you were armed with this information and knew that you were in a danger zone, perhaps you could pay attention to your senses and know to turn around before it's too late.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you can maybe get some chemical sensor or some biosensor. People have talked about that in terms of, you know, I mean, the old idea of the canary in a coal mine. Well, it's not that we're going to carry around a canary, but if you can carry around like these radiation badges that people wear, you know, whenever it starts to turn color, you know, it's time to get out of there. Uh, and, you know, you could either have it with some microbes or, or, or some chemical film or something that would be detecting it. And, 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 give you an idea because a lot of things you know like carbon monoxide it's odorless and colorless and you can't tell it's causing the problem until you're in pretty bad shape or dead so we have co monitors that we put in our houses that make a loud beep whenever the O goes above a certain threshold so i can see where people would develop devices for a number of different toxic compounds that we can't readily sense with our smell or or see with our eyes
3: Oh, well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I didn't mean to dominate the whole
2: thing. <laughs>
3: so while well, you still have a minute or two left,
2: yeah.
3: if the girls have any questions.
1: Hi, Dr. Levin. Thank you for, for joining us today. And my speaker is a little wonky right now, so it's kind of hard for me to understand what's going on. But whether you answer this or not, I'm going to ask the question. I can always cut it out later okay. if you did. But you know, the explosion of mental illness around the us is so high right now and we often correlate that with the stress of the pandemic and i think the missing link of what we're not looking into is what you look into and that is what are people's exposures on a day-to-day are they living next to a toxic algae bloom are they living in a highly polluted you know near a highway are they near, you know, an agricultural cornfield where they're spraying pesticides? And, and I just want to know your opinion as a neurobehavioral toxicologist, is mental illness on the rise just simply because it's psychological and what we're dealing with the pandemic? Or is there an environmental component to this?
2: Well, I mean, certainly it's, it's psychological because it's, it's a mental illness. And if you mean psychological, like it's not real in terms of having a kind of environmental cause, uh, no, I, I think there are real causes. And if those causes are, you know, chemical environment in which you live or the psychosocial stresses in terms of, you know, not having your regular life that you're used to and having to stay inside staring into a screen all day, that also can cause problems or too little exercise or, or a poor diet. Or, <clears throat> you know, there are a lot of things that go into, you know, people coming down with mental illness. But I, you know, uh, the chemical side of it, I I think is important, which is why I do what I do, but it's not the entire story. I mean, certainly there are other aspects to it too, but, uh, you know, I I think, uh, you know, we need to work together and to to try to to discover new causes and new treatments and and to to better people's lives in general. And I want to thank you for inviting me and it's been a great discussion.
1: Thank you again, Dr. Levin. We really appreciate your work in this field and uh, hopefully we'll be in contact in the future.
2: Okay. Well, thanks a lot. And have a great
1: day. Hello, everyone. I'd love to introduce you to the Exposing Mold team. We are passionate and committed to exposing the truth about toxic mold. Many mold-injured people are often misdiagnosed with autoimmune conditions, nerve damage, mental illnesses, and other chronic health conditions due to the lack of knowledge about water damage and toxic mold growing in their homes. The crippling effects of toxic mold has destroyed many lives. It has become part of our life's mission to expose this truth and educate society on the extreme effects that mold can have on the body. Our work is vital because of the lack of experience and acknowledgement from mainstream medical practitioners. Keely, Eric, and Alicia have firsthand experience dealing with mold exposure, and we make sure to address all the signs and symptoms during every environmental screening that is performed. Our team's dedication to learning and understanding the effects of toxic mold and educating and bringing awareness to patients keep us motivated. We know firsthand just how devastating the untreated consequences can be on your health, the health of your families, relationships, and life outcomes. If you or someone you know might be affected by toxic mold exposure, rest assured that you and our team will work together to find a solution. Currently, Keely is offering environmental screenings, education on mold avoidance, Chinese medicine recommendations, and will screen you for past or current exposures. She will help you embrace mold avoidance as a lifestyle and teach you how your sensitivities and reactions act as a compass to recovery. If you need clarity on mold testing reports or remediation plans, she's your gal. Alicia specializes in developing mold avoidance strategies that meet your unique needs. She's experienced in extreme avoidance and can provide coaching for hotel, RV and trailer and campground living. Eric Johnson specializes in provider training offering mold injury, hypersensitization and patient relapse prevention education. Book your consult with one of our team members by visiting exposingmold.com slash consultations. Or you can also join our support group by visiting patreon.com slash exposing mold. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash exposing mold. Thank you, everyone. Thank you everyone for joining us today. We had narrow behavioral toxicologist Dr. Ed Levin. You know. It's so interesting when we meet these scientists and these researchers and these doctors, because I never knew that these fields existed. So it's really interesting to hear about common day-to-day illnesses like autism, depression, and anxiety being attributed to environmental factors such as Uh, algae blooms and exposures to other toxicants. Thank you again, everyone. Please like, share, comment on our content. Also check out our Patreon pages to keep this podcast rolling. Thank you again. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.